Hi there, my name is Corey Dundon. And I'm Michelle Maunder. And you are listening to Spirited Conversations, engaging and elevating pediatric occupational therapists. A joint collaboration between SEED, Pediatric Services, and Developmental FX. Each week, you'll hear from myself and Michelle as we nerd out with Tracy Stackhouse. Just a note before we start, Spirited Conversations is for informational purposes only. With that, let's jump in to today's episode. I just think it's like fascinating how the somatosensory system is connected to the affective self system. Ooh. And, you know, in, in the most constructive, important relationships that we have, our attachment relationships, they, they grow from, from the system, right? So I, I think understanding that so that when you're treating, you have a respect and an admiration for the power of touch and the interpersonal shared touch and in the little moments and in the big moments and in, in the way that our skin to skin contact, our hand to hand exchanges, our brushing into each other's shared spaces or even not touching, but just sharing space and, and what that means mm-hmm. to be in a shared environmental exchange that invokes the touch receptors, even from a distance. Mm. It's really, Mm. it's just like mind boggling to me how important it is, not just in the early attachment parts of our world, but forever, like our whole existence depends on it. Yeah. And then, well, we're just jumping right in. Um, Yeah. Because (laughs) there's also this kind of, you know, One of the things that I think we're learning about development is that neurodevelopment in some ways is the window into anything that goes awry, whether it be your wellness trajectory or the decline that inevitably happens at the end of life. Mm. So there's these mirrors, right, of development. And there's this kind of fascinating research about People who uh, have not experienced strong, connected attachment relationships early in their life, the nervous system so desperately needs that information that then you project forward and maybe you have, let's say you have a college age, university age, young woman who's struggling now with this separation into this adulting life. And they start to have all of this somatization, this kind of somatosensory amplification is one of the words that's used for it, where they, they're not well, they're not feeling well. They feel every sensation as a negative. They're feeling, you know, every time they drink a glass of water, they have a stomach ache. And and there's a reality to that. That's not to say that that isn't really happening. But the treatment isn't just the physical treatment. The treatment is to go back and re-establish a felt sense of safety in your body and to reconnect to your touch system. Because the touch system is amplifying just like it does phantom limb when somebody has an injury we have phantom limb basically from a missing out in the relational experiences that we need so there's this kind of mirror of 
the sensory defensive profile that we might see in early development as a neurodevelopmental condition, but then it can have this lingering effect or show up in a different way later. And sometimes when I read this research and I'm just sort of like, my mind is blown, you know, mm. based on how everyone is coming to a different appreciation of sensory integrative processing. Scientists like, there's a paper that Andy Meltzoff wrote in 2019, and he he's like a very well-established mm. researcher in, in developmental psychology. And he ends one of these papers, um, I'm trying to remember, it's a paper about body maps in the infant brain and how important they are for neurodevelopment. And he ends it by saying, in 2019, he says, this is a brand new area of study. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I just think, oh, oh, Gene Ayers, you were so ahead of your world because it just <laughs> is like astounding to me that that is like a frank statement. I just read it in this paper thinking about what we might talk about today. And it, it kind of made me chuckle and it made me proud of our work in OT and sensory mm. integration of course, made me think about Dr. Ayers and how far ahead she was, and also how in a little micro way, and sometimes in a bigger way, it's a little frustrating, like, no, this is not new. Um, yes. Right? <laughs> yeah. But do you know what? We kind of just get on with it, and I'm not in a position to have any influence over Andy, but it, you know, it's like, oh, we're just going to keep going. In Australia, there's a podcast that just launched a, a episode. It's called The Imperfects. It's three uh, clever RT guys getting together, but they're talking about raising awareness about mental health. They've done an episode with a GP who often can do the GP-ness side of mental health. Anyway, she did one about accessing mental health services, mentioned OT, and the guys who host the show did this huge shout-out to OTs, and it was really, really, really positive. And one of them's like, oh, what is it? Two of them really knew about it, and they, he said, I thought it was just people helping people with occupations. <laughs> you know, all the things A classic. That we might be <laughs> referred to as yeah. The classics. Yeah. So it just started this big train on their profiles about how glorious OTs are. So there's pockets of OT-ness. Anyway, we digress. You said too many awesome things, Trace, to even get caught up in that. Can I just go back? Oh, where do we want to start? I kind of want to start. The thing that made me curious is around your comments about the researchers. Uh, saying that if you have attachment that is not secure in your early childhood. So is that, that's just from a relational and that's where there's been no physical assault or anything really of a physical nature that might trigger that. It is the relational piece, which may mean that they didn't get soothing touch and, you know, cuddle rhythmically. But so there's a touch component of secure attachment, but, but it's in the absence of physical uh, assault. Yeah. So it's not so much in the case of abuse. These are really people who no. grow up in insecure attachment relationships. And what happens as you, 
you know, move forward away from that primary set of relationships is that you often carry that attachment style with you. So as an adult, mm. it would really look like kind of an insecure or anxious kind of attachment. You're not avoiding being in relationships, but you're quite mm. sensitive to relationships. And the mm. research, the longitudinal research shows that these individuals are super sensitive. They're like easily, their feelings mm. are easily hurt. They often feel that people, they're not paranoid really, but they're really aware that if somebody looks at them the wrong way, they are sure it's about them. And it's this deep insecurity, this deep sense of social anxiety. I don't quite fit here. I wish these people like me. I don't know how to like them. They don't know how to like me. I don't know how to like myself. It's this kind of strife mm. that happens and not feeling like I accept myself. People like me or they don't, but it doesn't, you know, when people like me, I can draw resources from them. I mm. can enjoy them. I can utilize that relationship. So what you see in this group of people is that they have this relational sense of anxiety, but they also have mm -hmm. a enhanced, it's actually the mm -hmm. phrase that they use is somatosensory amplification. Mm -hmm. So the somatosensory system wow. is over signaling. It's sort of amplifying and it's doing it in a way that is related back to the way that our nervous system draws resources from the interoceptors, from the somatosensory system to give us a sense of here I am, I get my signals, I know mm. how to use those signals. And that mediation of that, the modulation of signal mm. comes from the attachment mm. relationship. Mm. So when a baby is hungry mm. and you soothe them or you let them know food is coming and you cuddle them and you nurture them and you let them know you're mm. well, you're okay, you're taken care of, you are getting a signal that you're hungry and that need is going to be met. So in the attachment relationship, mm -hmm. the synchronization of the interoceptive experience, the physiological cue, mm -hmm. the somatic sensation is put together. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like beautifully put together mm -hmm. in the relationship. And so when you come to trust through the cues of the other, my body's okay, my needs are met, I'm taken care of. When I get hungry, thirsty, tired, when I don't feel good, I'm okay. And I get that soothing and I get the reassurance that the signal of hunger is going to be met. But when you're mm. in a relationship that is insecure, sometimes I get that need mm. met, but sometimes I don't, then you can have these different profiles where the nervous system says, I need to amplify that signal. Mm. And then if you keep doing that over your lifetime, you can, this is one of the things that is speculated to cause like Crohn's disease, for instance, where you're mm. over signaling all the time. Mm. And then you end up mm. in a process where even the nourishment that you need doesn't soothe the need that what, because it's the mix mm. of physiology and relationship that needs to soothe it, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in my mind, this yes. individual uh, maybe didn't come into the world with diversity around how they process somatosensory input. Like 
they might have come in with perfectly adequate potential for integration around that input, um, but their life experiences early on may not have optimally organized that system because it's all done through our early caregiving experiences and all that input is just so intricately organized in that way. So they might not have had the chance to organize or receive soothing somatosensory input through a consistent relationship. Is that what you're sort of saying? Mm -hmm. Then, Mm -hmm. then they didn't have, I guess that that piece, the ability to get somatosensory input through a positive relational experience has been Mm -hmm. missing for them. So early on, you said that that our nervous system kind of has this almost like phantom limb experience around that. I have Mm -hmm. that need for that opportunity to be created or arise so that my nervous system can reorganize this experience in a way that's helpful and modulatory for my physiology. Like you would a baby, right? Like, yeah. So, so as OTs, like, yes, we are aware of the attachment we are aware of that piece and some of us go and do a lot of extensive extra training around the mental health side of that. But in general, we tend to have skilled training around the the sensory integrative component of it. And we're always doing our Mm. interventions through a relationship. But I guess in terms of adding to this treatment approach or space, we can advocate for these people to have positive somatosensory experiences in relationships, I guess. Is that right? Yeah, that's a hundred percent. That's a hundred percent right. I think it's also that in the children that we see, some kids do arrive with some kind of neurodiversity in the way that they process. And so it might make it harder for them to respond to the caregiving that is provided. So we don't always know the direction of that, right? And so then those kids Mm. may be, again, without treatment, a lot more vulnerable to lifelong issues. Sometimes people still have this incorrect idea that kids might just outgrow this uh, or these issues that Mm. we Mm. identify, Mm. but you know, some of this longitudinal research tells us that the implication for just allowing for sensory processing differences or the inability to engage in the full range of sensations that typically are expected by the nervous system, that there's Mm. actually a long-term implication in our wellness for that. Mm. And I think that that's Mm. kind of a different aha for all of us to collectively take a breath around and just say, wow, you know, we as OTs know the power and importance of this work, but it, in a way it it sheds a different light around how Mm. critically important it is because we think about the adaptive responses all the time. We're trying to build the capacity Mm. for skillful motor planning. We talked about in the last episode, or we think about feeling comfortable in the skin that I live in and feeling good about how I navigate Mm. the world based on this is who I am in the world. But there's a deeper level of wellness that can be impacted by altered sensory processing. And whether that sensory integrative Mm. processing difficulty is inherent to the child or it comes about because of the lived experience Mm. that doesn't Mm. match what they need, 
in either case, there can be these long-term repercussions that go all the Mm. way to the core of how their physiology works. Mm. And I think it's important to to pause and think about that. But then also just Mm. the somatosensory system our skin, our, you know, the whole surround of us and what we're taking in continually and how it's telling us about ourselves is critically important. And we can talk so much about that, but I think it's also connected to as we become the people that we are, we're exchanging in relationship with other people. And our somatosensory system is also the primary system that helps us to have empathy, that helps us to connect to other people. Mm. Because what we literally do is we take on and feel the experience of the other person. Mm. And as we remap, when I notice your, your face gets an aha, and then I take in the aha and I feel it, my mirror neurons mm. recreate it. And the empathy circuitry allows me to say we're on the same page or not. And then as we Mm -hmm. connect and share and grow our shared experience and we co-create, co-occupy moments in time, that's how we become who we are. So if our somatosensory system Mm -hmm. doesn't allow us to do that well, then we're going to be at a really significant disadvantage to being able to have shared moments of connection, know that we're building alliances and allyships and friendships and relationships that are meaningful Mm. and to feel a part of, and to feel like we're connected and we belong. And when we work with Mm. kids who don't have that real felt sense of, I belong, it often goes back to, they are mapping and remapping and using the shared somatosensory experience And so we have to work on that in our work. It's not just let's play in a bin of beans, but let's let's really (laughs) join together and have shared experiences where my body and your body are moving in synchrony in meaningful ways, where Mm. I'm exchanging things with you and having shared tactile moments Mm. and that we're connecting. Uh, Those are all really real things that kids need and we need, Mm. right? And, and that in that process, we might amplify certain components so that the somatosensory systems, the interoceptive system, the tactile system, the proprioceptive system can take on that experience. I guess we're supporting the process mm. of integration around the relational mm. experience and the somatosensory experience and coming together to support that sense of self and then playing Mm. that out in their other relationships so that they can build that capacity through their Mm. lifespan and support their wellness. Mm. Um, You go, Michelle, because I feel like you had things to say, but this all brought up this whole neurodiversity, like talk and movement for me as well. Absolutely, Corey. Then when you do that in um, proximal interchange happening that's relational and tactile and it's backwards and forwards. So I guess what's coming to mind is this quality of being able to cross space and time that when you have some robustness in a relationship that's close, then you can get further away from them and they can still hold that felt sense of you within a relationship. So then when that girl went to uni 
or when Corey moves to Brisbane and, you know, Trace is in US, we have had time together and we've hugged and we've played and we've we cried. No we've doubt. Cried. We've done all the things. <laughs> we've done all, you know, we've shared emotion, we've shared touch and in, in various contexts. So I feel you, my experience um, tactilely, like I feel you and relate with you across countries and across time and even when we don't see each other and Corey and I are chatting, you know, we're chatting on text and that kind of thing, I feel you. And I wonder if that girl who went to uni that didn't have that foundationally, even at that very close proximal distance or environment, when she went away, she couldn't hold on to that felt sense of relationship and some amount of sensory experience, I guess. Anyway, I wonder if there's something in that trace. If it's not robust, it's not transportable across time and space. Uh Absolutely, absolutely, that's true. And it's a part of our resilience factors, the way that we mm. transport our resources to put them to use in a variety mm. of situations and circumstances and in different relational contexts. And we have to prime the pump, if you will, in the attachment relationships so mm. that when we show up in a uni setting, we can create healthy, strong attachments with other people that are not our family. Maybe we do that with a pet or we go horseback riding and that becomes our lifeline. I mean, people do a lot of different things to find that connection, but they can also quickly fall into kind of maladaptive patterns and not really healthy relationships. And some of that is that they don't have that ability to transport what were those kernels of richness that allowed me to to foster those kinds of relationships mm. and then you can become super vulnerable to feeling lonely and isolated mm. to substituting relationships for other kinds of things like all the things that people mm. might do to fill that risky in. behaviors risky yep. behaviors mm. you know hyper focus on mm. on anything right yeah Mm-hmm. I was thinking about, I want to come back to the fact that it's mm. almost remiss of us not to support this these functions to come together to a greater capacity for the individuals that we support. Um, because I'm just thinking about like, I guess, just let them be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of, and I think it's a really good thing. There's a lot of awareness at the moment around like not forcing compliance and not respecting the individual. And I feel like OTs have been super awesome at those two things for a long time, right? Well, maybe some of us could have gotten a lot better, right? But I can only speak to myself, but I've always been super aware of how uncomfortable and yucky it feels when you get into like a, we're doing my idea situation or, you you know, like I just, in, in my internal sense, it was like, uh, this isn't helpful. Like, and it was always trying to find the juice and the sparkle and what creates an, a more adaptive function for them because we're occupational therapists. We're looking for, mm 
more integrative function for more possibilities for that individual, right? Choice and possibility in their life to engage in meaningful things. So I like the fact that we're focusing now on let's not like, not don't force these people to do things that are really uncomfortable for them and to be in experiences that don't match their nervous system very well and to, you know, make them follow the societal expectations of whatever. I think that's a really good thing. But I also think I worry that at moments we might go too far and not support them at all um, in a way that's individualized to them and that helps them find more adaptive ability in their own nervous system because I don't know. Do you know what I mean? I just think we need to get the balance. Give me an well, example, Corey. Um, if you have a little kiddo who has, maybe they have autism and for whatever reason, and they're not regulated, they might do certain things to help their nervous system feel a bit better. Like maybe they need to pace back and forth in the room, or maybe they need to stand at the window and or flick the cord or whatever it is that they need to do to help them nervous system feel better. And we're worried about people going in and forcing interaction in those moments where a kiddo needs a break. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really good thing, but I also don't ever want to leave that kiddo just to be off completely unanchored. I want to find the right recipe to help support them in those moments. That's not forcing interaction, but that's also supporting their ability to reorganize their sense of self and then have possibility for alternate ways of experiencing their world, I guess. Am I being clear? I'm not sure. Um, yeah, you are. What I think you're speaking to in so many ways is exactly the foundation of our passion for occupational therapy and the work of Gene Ayers. And that is that we want people to find the ability to have the freedom of adaptation. You know, so the thing that happens when you have restrictions in processing mm. is that you lose your ability to have the freedom of choice. So there mm. are lots of new voices coming out, right? Where we're hearing, especially I think autistic voices of people who are saying, you know, when I was looking out the window for 45 minutes and couldn't look away, I needed you to help me because I was stuck and it feels terrible to be mm. stuck. And so we're in that situation where we have to deeply attune so that we can even help to discern, is this, are you stuck or is this helping you? Mm. And I think making that mm. discernment can sometimes be very, very, very tricky. Mm. It also comes back, I think, to really understanding how basic sensory integrative processing works, because if you notice mm. that a child is standing and repeated, repeatedly touching something and, but when they're doing it, as you watch the motor pattern, you notice that the touch is not really of the quality of let me actually reach out and engage with this, but it's more of just a repetitive pattern. And as soon as you notice the difference mm. in the somatosensory processing that allows you to skillfully reach out in order to engage versus I'm stuck in a loop, it's through understanding mm. how the somatosensory system is guiding the motor function. Once you learn how to look through that lens, then you're going to be more likely to get it. You're going to notice 
this doesn't look like it's producing a higher level adaptive opportunity. It looks like it's stuck. And as soon as you can get that, mm -hmm. then you start to be able to be a conduit that says, oh, you're, you're kind of stuck here. Let's help you get unstuck. Or you're really mm -hmm. reaching out and enjoying that. Let's enhance and augment that mm -hmm. and create a different way of even having you have more success with that thing that you're doing. Mm. And so we're really good mm. at that, but I think it's because we know how to notice the glimmer, notice the quality of approach in the action pattern, notice whether it's organized or disorganized and really regard that wholly as a part of the, the nonverbal communication, basically, that the person is generating mm -hmm. and really receive that as meaning and not just look at it, the action as a perfunctory, oh, let me just label that as repetitive behavior. Um, instead of understanding mm -hmm. what is that? What mm -hmm. is that? What is that? Mm -hmm. And the, the understanding of the sensory systems helps us to ask that question in a, in a really deep and meaningful way. Mm. I often wonder to Tracy because I know that somatosensory system, um, the soothing touch and also deep pressure input can have a modulating or inhibiting effect on the nervous system that can be down-regulating. So I guess in, in addition to the things that you mentioned, I just want to point out that sometimes I'm working out is that touch that you're doing or the somatosensory input that you're engaging in, is it regulating? Like, is it, it's not just that you're trying to explore the thing, um, you know, when it doesn't have that quality about it, but it is perhaps, it is repetitive, but does it look organizing, not necessarily in terms of a motor function or a discriminative function, but a, a regulation function as well? Because I know as saying that there is this, uh, I think we haven't said it yet, but there's a down-regulating quality or a regulating quality to it um, as well. So that's something I look out for as well because it, it, it'll have a different quality again if it's looping. Um, yeah. Do we want to talk about deep pressure and regulation and scabber and yeah. yeah i think we should well but i was gonna say given that you were saying these receptors and and tracy i think in the last episode mm. you talked about them being very gabinergic gabinergic is that right where they release a lot of inhibition it, i guess neuromodulators if you provide input to the somatosensory system in a deep pressure kind of organizing way it's very gabinergic and it down regulates the nervous system in a way that's helpful. And you were saying earlier that with that individual that missed the potential for experience that was modulating through the relationship, that later they, it seems like then it's almost their physiology is unmodulated. Un like it's, it hasn't had the down-regulating experience of relationship-based somatosensory experience. Mm -hmm. um, so it like you said, Michelle, no wonder we go to that as a strategy because we know neurologically mm. that's a function of that system. Even if we take the relationship mm. base out of it, you can't even, you can't ever do that. But even if you don't even think about that piece, just thinking about somatosensory input, we know 
that it has that effect. So we often try to mm. enhance that or find ways that, that that's organizing the child in a way. And mm-hmm. and you said when they're mm-hmm. seeking that like movement or touch or whatever experience it is, but it doesn't seem to be for an exploratory quality. We wonder if we get in there and enhance it in a certain way, or we provide the opportunity for an experience of similar kind of quality, but bigger or more adaptive, however it looks, as long as we're really finely attuned to their response, we can tell if what we're doing is just taxing the nervous system further. Like, is that experience Mm. not supporting them? And maybe our relationship is too much. And so we just back away, right? We give, we respect that response and we go, okay, that's not the way in. Let's not do that. Um, or we find something that supports that child to find an alternative response or a different way of organizing the input. And then you can see it in their body, either softening or coming into themselves mm-hmm. or now there's possibility and I'm not just doing this activity. I'm now making a choice and I'm mm-hmm. showing intent in a different way. Um, and then it's a different response mm-hmm. from us. I guess it's that dance, but I feel like we're always attuned to whether our relationship or our contribution to the interaction is supportive or if it's actually needs to be backed off. And we're doing that function all the time to support adaptive being, I guess. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I think in that, if we identify that the level of comfort that this person's experiencing is not wide enough, to allow for the range of experiences that might be possible in this moment, then a lack of comfort will then restrict the level of engagement. And the restriction engagement is going to restrict participation. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of Mm -hmm. the slippery slope, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And what we want to do then is say, well, what is my best opportunity to go back to the source of that slippery slope? And if it is, let me help you find how pressure creates a wider window of comfort for you. So that Mm -hmm. pressure input then allows for the next higher level of engagement, Mm. which then allows Mm. for the higher level of participation. So we can unwind it in a positive way by getting to the source and creating that slate of open comfort and safety that allows for participation. And very often the somatosensory system is a critical element to that because we have to use these pressure receptors that help us to have the inhibition and create that safety platform so that we can operate from it. Mm. And then when I feel Mm. safe in my skin, it's easier for me to decide to reach out and touch a thing that's out in my environment. If I'm not feeling Mm. safe in my skin, literally not feeling safe, not feeling comfortable, then the possibility for engagement and participation is so limited. And the somatosensory system, both Mm. through the, just the pressure inputs themselves that are so down-regulating and invoke GABA, but that then says, Now be with me in this social touch space, Mm -hmm. in that social haptic space of the haptic being the touch proprioceptive visual system and you being here sharing that with me. And as we invoke Mm -hmm. that, then 
we start to have the possibility of the information substances like serotonin telling us this is, feels good and soothing and interesting and curious. And then we start to have the hormonal system like oxytocin saying, not only does this feel good, but it feels enriching to me. It feels nourishing to me. Mm-hmm. It feels connected and shared to me. And even for a person who comes to the world with neurodiversity, their nervous system is still using the same systems to say, this Mm. is what soothes me. Mm. And every person on the planet, everyone we treat, I, I would love it if every time we, you know, create a treatment plan, we include the questions, do I know what soothes this child? Mm. Do I know what reassures Mm. this child? Mm. Do I know how to encourage them with gentleness? Do I know how to encourage them with vigor? Do I know how to help them find zest and glimmer? And can I find that whole range? And most of the time that's going to include the somatosensory system as a partner because mm-hmm. the color of that affect comes from somatosensation. So it's a sensory affective pairing that allows us to understand the range of comfort to discomfort and the range of engagement that's possible because of my comfort or my discomfort. So good. I've got um, a funny little story that might illustrate some of that. I see brothers, two brothers, neurodiverse, and they the family travels a distance to come to see our clinic. So I do them in tandem, 20 sessions with one child, 20 with the other. They often invite the other brother in. So I had my sibling session yesterday. We have a book. Pit. Thank you, Corey. And it's filled right up to the brim. So they knew the ball pit was on offer. One of the brothers who's been seeing me loves it, has had his feel of it. He uh, came in ready to play. He saw the ball pit, crashed in, and then was like, okay. I'll just say, brother, okay, brother, I'm ready to play that. They play this hide-to-go-seek and then a chase-his game. So he dived in, had 30 seconds of his thing, and then was like, let's be social. The brother who I haven't seen for three months came in, looked at me and was like, oh, he could just see me who, you know, we love playing together and then he saw the ball pit and he would often run over and give me a high five or a hug or something but then he was like oh which one will I go to so he dived into the ball pit with his brother and got into it and did this starfish swimming on his back thing to nestle into it the balls were all over his face then he just stayed in there it was still he's not a still kind of kiddo and he, I was just watching him and that whole thing actually happened. Trace, I could see him delight, like anticipate what was coming up, choose a ball bit over <laughs> me, which is amazing. And then nestle in and just feel the impact of, um, the balls on him, the light touch, but they are heavy because there's a lot of them. Um, and then just stay there. 
he stayed there and I just saw this wave go over his face of, oh, this is so delicious. Popped his little eyes up. Brother saying, hey, hey, let's go, let's go, let's find her. We had soft toys ready to go, so we're burying them. And so older brother was was ready to go. He had his stopwatch out and and younger brother who hadn't had his feel of that input for a while but just took ages. And the process was exactly that. It was like, oh, I just delighted and felt good and had all that somatosensory input making him feel good he eventually kind of poked up and looked at me with these gooey eyes like oh Michelle (laughs) you know he was just in love deep sense of deliciousness and then he succumbed basically to the brothers urging to do the game but it, it wasn't where he wanted to be but it was just exactly that he got adaptive and he played and he used the balls to hide things in but he um yeah didn't want to you'd be pulled out of that to be um in that really social playful dynamic um game anyway I just thought I'd share because it was like, <laughs> wow, that is exactly what happened. Um, it's, it is funny because yeah. I guess we're talking about with the balls really enhancing of tactile, like real enhance of tactile input, yes. right, to the whole body, like a real, here you are, like <laughs> all the receptors, yeah. as many as I can activate as I get into the ball pit, it's like, oh, here I am. <laughs> um, but I was thinking about, because mm. Tracy was talking about like the incidental moments, because we're talking about treatment, right, mm. when maybe the ways we can find those moments of just incidental positive experiences of tactile input in a really safe space relationally and um and in that case Michelle it was the equipment right that allowed that um and we so totally use the equipment to do that for sure that's why we train right to know to use the equipment to get the responses that we well that we're hoping for um I've done things with the balls like from the ball pit where I've had kids climb into the top of the lycra. So we have the layers of the lycra, climb to the top of the lycra, and then I just mm. cover them, the <laughs> cover them yeah. with the balls. And then we like shake and move in there in a really rhythmic way or whatever. And some like, just depends on the kiddo, right? You're just trying to find what is it? Do I know what soothes that child? What brings the zest or bigger or, mm. um, and, but I was thinking about the kiddos that sometimes if you want it to be like incidental touch, um, it actually made me think of Kim mm-hmm. Barthel because she talks about ways she would do this with kiddos as well. If she didn't have any equipment or anything, like she would get out like stickers and like play with letting them put stickers on you and then they want you to put them on them and like where do you want me to put it and you put the sticker on. or And I guess there's similar things with like shaving cream or other things that we do with kids, right, that other people would be like, what what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I feel like sometimes when I'm treating, um, I'm I'm so aware all the time of those opportunities. I love this little penguin game. It's called Pingaloo, and you hide the little eggs under the penguins, and you have these colors, and it's like a memory game. And but I do a lot of things where we're setting them up, and I hold them in my hand, and then mm. I really on purpose pass them to the child and one egg at a time and compress it with a little pressure in their hand. And Mm. then 
hold that for just a second so we have a really meaningful moment and then I but we're focused on setting up the game but we're having these tactile exchanges Mm -hmm. and I remember playing that game not too long ago in a therapy session and the mom was noticing how I was doing this and I had been talking with her about you know really enhancing these opportunities so then she went home and they were practicing setting the table for dinner. And she did the same process where she would Mm. take the spoon and hand it to her daughter Mm. and make sure that they had a moment of exchange Mm. and then allow for the action to finish. But just infusing it into these little daily moments where now my hands are in contact with you and now we're in synchrony Mm. with each other. And then when I drop the egg and I say, oh no, the level of empathy and shared problem solving that that child can show in that moment versus 15 minutes before where we weren't in tactile communication with each other is strikingly different. So how we build strong, healthy communities Mm -hmm. is that we have strong, healthy social cognition and empathy and shared actions where we are in touch with each other you know, and you guys living in the country and, you know, you have a lot more opportunity to just naturally go pick oranges together or do a thing to, we did that. We talked about oranges many, many, many (laughs) podcasts ago, but we don't have as many of those opportunities here unless we cultivate them. Mm. Right. But, you know, that's where I just think you've got pickleball. We have pickleball, we have gardening, we have, you know, playing with animals and playing in nature. But, you know, when we're in nature, we aren't just playing in nature. We are looking for opportunities for enhanced somatosensory exchanges, enhanced um, movement exchanges. And that's the lens that sensory integration brings to our work Mm. that is so vital because, These are the the real neurovitamins. This is what your brain needs to Mm. actually put the world together. Mm. And um, so we have Mm. to think about it and enhance it and augment it and create opportunities for what does that lead to? And look at how cool it is when we discover together that sharing a moment of caregiving for the little penguin egg is the coolest thing that happened to me all week. And connection builds wellness. Mm. Wow. I keep talking and thinking about through this episode about kids with neurodiversity and um, perhaps communication challenges where they might misinterpret touch and this sense of facilitating them to understand what's appropriate and not appropriate. I'm working with some teens actually who are neurodiverse, um, early childhood trauma, ADHD and ASD. So at the moment he's, he's 14. He's standing really close to people. He has a tick that's moved into his throat. So he's really now doing like a guttural <coughs> kind of sound and he's touching kids a lot on their arms shoulder or he pops them on their head really I'm trying to thoughtfully and respectfully bring attention to the potential impact and the miscuing that people might be um, staff in particular but might be feeling with that 
cluster, I guess, of his behaviours and trying to ensure that everybody's feeling safe and that he's connected to him without him touching, but I want his needs to be met for he wants to come in close and be with people. So it's just I'm really aware of having his needs met by someone. He's now in out-of-home care, so that gets tricky. The staff actually probably legally aren't allowed to hug him or touch him in, you know, ways that might typically be received by a young boy. And I just thought when you explained that situation, Trace, about the nuance of a lingering touch, like we get that and younger kids do, but I, I, I don't know. It starts to move in an area where I I guess I'm thinking about problemized and sexualized behaviours or that behaviour, that seeking of connection with touch that can be misinterpreted and that some of the kids we work with are vulnerable to that from that direction then I guess miscuing but also the other way I really see that some kids who have carers educators who might be giving them lots of hugs and giving them you know kisses on their cheek when they do something well so the intention is to care and express joy with them but I worry that they're really vulnerable and it's not too many years that they move into that you know that example I just provided where it's like oh it's complicated what what's okay through touch and relationship is pretty nuanced across different people yeah no I think it I mean (laughs) it's a completely critical part of the landscape that we enter Mm. when we start talking about Mm. touch is that It is my interpersonal space and your interpersonal space. There are boundaries to be regarded there on every Mm -hmm. single level. And so as professional deliverers of exchanges Mm -hmm. that happen in the interpersonal space, we have to deeply regard those boundaries, help understand, you know, what's at stake basically, and know that we are Mm -hmm. working with vulnerable populations and, that we have to follow the rules of that. So, I mean, I think the rules of engagement Mm -hmm. always are around permission. And Mm -hmm. so permission starts to be a really complicated topic when you start to talk about Mm -hmm. somebody who's living in, in a situation maybe where their rights are restricted because they're not being cared for by a family And those individuals are more vulnerable to lifelong difficulties that are related back to often not Mm. having the experiences and relationships that they needed. Mm -hmm. And so in our context, as long as we know that we have to have the safety of that, there are other people around that we aren't doing things in private Mm. ever, and that we're really talking about body rules and boundaries as a part and parcel Mm -hmm. of what we're doing Mm -hmm. and that we're educating and using really careful psychoeducation with everyone whenever we possibly can and being explicit Mm -hmm. about the rules that we're following. Those are Mm -hmm. really important things. In our clinic, we have adopted the 33 rules of body safety that we try to follow at all times. And those are from a social worker here in Colorado who's written extensively about this and has interviewed, Mm. you know, people who are perpetrators of crossing these boundaries and 
tried to learn about it as deeply as she possibly can. I think in every culture, we have to be aware of all the rules and all the boundaries and all of those mm-hmm. things. And that's incumbent upon us to do so. So mm-hmm. it's not a topic to be taken lightly. I know that you have to be critically attuned to these issues and never take them lightly, but also to know that the cost of not delivering touch is damaging. Mm -hmm. And um, I wouldn't ever say, I I, almost the word equal came out, but I stopped myself because, you know, there's no qualitative way to, to know what is the deepest, hardest impact to our lifelong journey. But we know that abuse is terrible and also the absence of the experience Mm. that we need is terrible Mm. and they're Mm. all damaging. Mm. So we have to be aware Mm. of all of those levels. Mm. Yeah. I just read on the Harvard center for the developing child and they have like eight key things for development to keep in mind. And one of them is that neglect can be as impactful as the other negative experience and like you're saying in not providing the opportunity can feel Mm -hmm. maybe like it's a neglect to their nervous system and so I I was thinking about your kiddo Michelle Mm -hmm. that boy Mm -hmm. I guess it's like a a whole process as a team of being like, okay, there's an unmet need here. What are our boundaries? Like we don't want him to stand Mm. too close. We feel really uncomfortable with that. Okay. We need to figure out how to get the need met and respect our boundaries and keep him safe. And I guess it's just like this conversation, right? Um, And it's like, you would be doing Mm. that, I'm sure. And I, and I, I know, like you said, you're trying to respectfully help him attune to the fact that he's miscuing people Mm. because you can see the need and that's that's a huge thing because he you're mm. on his team it's not his intention yeah it's not his intention it's just an unmet need and you're really. restoring that for the people around him right and i hope i'm doing it in terms of breaking that down because i think it in part he really want some rough and tumble place. So we're doing that for multiple reasons, but in part for that, that we can start to do ball wrestle and sock wrestle. And I'm, you know, really going back developmentally, I guess, but there's a physicality in that. And so he's like, we're like doing the check-in. So we pause and, in, you know, in addition to all the other kind of things that you do with the ball wrestle where it's like oh I just kind of half squished your leg is that okay (laughs) so we're we're doing this you know oh I pushed you over was that ball too hard it it felt really um not um automatic and a bit weird but it's a way to be like oh are you okay to that yeah squishing a leg that's fine oh your hand on my hand nah move your hand away so we're through this ball play I guess wrestling having fun, doing rough and tumble, having a physical kind of game that has us in close proximity, but doing this consent, is that all right with you? Is that all right with you? And he started to say, I had a coffee breath. Here's a reveal. (laughs) I had coffee breath. He was like, (laughs) that's too close. And so, you know, it's not just that I get to say, (laughs) no, I don't like the head of my hand. He's like, I don't want your mouth (laughs) too breathing on me. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm also really working with his 
support workers in the home to see how he can get some moments of intimacy, I guess, tactile intimacy, because I think the rough and tumble and, you know, um, cuddling mates sideways were allowed, you know, we're talking about sideways cuddles and fist pumps and all that kind of stuff. So I think the more playful ways to get connection and tactile input, most amount of sensory input together are easier, particularly for a teen. But I want the softer flavors too, because he's, you know, he needs that as well. So it's like, oh, how can we have a handshake that might involve a squeeze and a pat on the back or a rub on the head that are laden with emotion and, and relationship but and intimate but a less construed you know hopefully less able to be misconstrued into intimate touch really that's of a you know intimate interpersonal nature so anyway it just has been interesting to listen to this because I think we get it. And there was a little boy yesterday, a three-year-old. He was getting so excited. And in the session, it was time to say goodbye. He came up and he put his hands kind of about to be on my face. And I thought, oh, he's going to touch my either side of my face. And I didn't know what was going to happen next, whether he might just touch me or come in for a kiss or I don't know what. But he didn't. He stopped his hands about 10 centimetres away from my face and then just was like, ooh, like, oh, you know, whatever. It just felt so, oh, I'm going to miss you. We played well together. I'm going to see you next week. But it was, it crossed touch. We didn't touch. I did it to him, you know, back to him. We didn't touch, but yeah, it was that really deeply personal, tactile infused. And you said that at the start, Trace. Yeah, yeah that's right. And what's yeah. also, I love what you just, you know, that story because boundaries come from our somatosensory receptors. Mm. They tell, that's the signal he got. Mm. Like, I, mm. I love you so much that I want to touch you, but now this is as far as I'm going to go because that's what feels right and safe. Mm. Yeah. And he felt all of that yeah. through his somatosensory system, mm. through his polyvagal circuitry. And he felt it and he honored it. You honored it. You reinforced it. And so boundaries aren't always like, you know, we must follow these rigid rules, which sometimes we need, mm. but they, it's about respecting the signals and living mm. by them and, and learning to trust them. And that's beautiful. I love that. 